I would say the left and even the Marxian anarchist left was severely depleted and degenerated at the beginning of the 21st century and Operation Pandemic in a sense just delivered the coup de grace to the critical abilities of most of its people. And here we are trying to pick up the pieces of what's left. Welcome to West Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, and uh, community organizer socialist Kenny Cepeda. We are online at what-s-left.webnote.com. Uh, you can find that link to our blog in the episode notes. Uh, you can also find our personal social media handles at Instagram at, at Don Eduardo Barca and Kenny's Instagram at ZDKE and Jessica's at J. Homie 89. And as you can see, Jessica is not with us today. She is taking a break today and we have Kenny with us instead. <laughs> well, not instead. I mean, he ha he's here with us this week from last week's break. Thank you, Kenny, for being with us again. We always love you and miss you. Why are you always leaving us? <laughs> uh, work was grind grinding me down, but I quit today. So, well, I didn't quit. Today was my last day. So, okay. <laughs> Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episode where we found this episode. Uh, and uh, again, you can find any of this, any of our uh, the links that I've mentioned in the episode notes. Thank you. Right, as I mentioned, Jessica's not with us, but we have uh, Jeffrey Stroll with us today, and he will be sharing with us. Um, his background, who he is, longtime Marxian socialist. Uh, Andy, maybe you could share with us uh, why you decided, why you thought this was a, the, the, the interview for this episode this week. Yeah, I mean, it's been something on my mind for a while. Um, Jeffrey has been, first of all, he's, he's a regular listener of What's Left. Mm -hmm. um, and he, like every episode we have, even though if, those of you who watch it on YouTube or anything like that, you might not see in his comments and on a YouTube comment, but through our Facebook, the way we do it, or in our Workers and Students for Choice group, he gives us really thorough and well thought out and just uh, great feedback. Um, not always in agreement, um, sometimes really disagreeing, but really the comments and how, the way he approaches our episode and the seriousness with which he approaches it. First off, I'm very honored by that. Um, and so I was like, but that's not the reason. I'm having, well, I wanted to have him here. And I think Kenny is also the person who kind of said, we got to have Jeffrey here. And I was like, I've been thinking that. So, so here's what's going on for me. Um, what, so normally I would just say folks and Jeffrey, just bear with me for a moment. If you heard that a Marxian or a Marxist was coming onto our episode, I would urge you to tune out because most of us have just been, have fucked this whole period. Um, but what really stood out for me with Jeff is that was not at all the case for him. Well, well before me even, like back in 9-11, he had a much more open understanding in my mind, a much more nimble understanding of using Marxism to not get fooled into sort of common, common areas that most of us, including myself as Marxists and socialists, got caught into of chasing liberals around and tailing them and 
radical sounding stuff and not wanting to be ultra left and not wanting to sound too left because we don't want to scare away Democrats. And that's just one piece of it. And in listening, we're talking to Jeff and his involvement in workers and students for choice, in his involvement in trying to fight this fourth industrial revolution, the technocratic takeover of the globe. Um, he has always used Marxism as a cent center of access for understanding what's going on, but he's always had something very creative and innovative as a way of approaching it and different. And for me, I honestly want to get this on camera. I want to get it recorded, not to put Jeff on the spot, but just, I feel like, you know, we, I think it's important that this stuff gets recorded. And I know you've written stuff, Jeff, but I want to hear with, based on our questions, my cat questions, Eduardo and Kenny's questions, what, what, what kind of Marx, what makes you a Marxist and what kind of, how would you describe your Marxism? And that's what I hope to do this episode. Personally, I think this might have to be a two-parter because I don't want to make it too long, but I also want to include the breadth of areas that I feel like you've read about and talked about. So that's kind of why it's like, I really respect Jeff, all the work you've done and the approach you take as a Marxist in not, not being dogmatic, but also being very insistent on certain principles. So um, that's where I'm coming from. Maybe Kenny, if you want to add anything. Yeah. I mean, I've always been curious, you know, because again, the comments, the feedback, uh, always been curious as to, you know, who Jeff is, you know, I haven't been able to continue to engage in uh, workers and students for choice. Um, but I'm always curious, you know, about people who have been in, in the struggle in some form for a long time, you know, and, and, and I'm always willing to listen and learn, you know, I, by no means do I think, uh, you know, I have a perfect understanding, nor do I think anyone does, <laughs> you know, because this is a collective effort, you know, and, and it takes disagreements, it takes debates, it takes uh, conversation, conversations, building trust, and you know, so I, 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 I'm here basically to kind of learn to hear, you know, to and just curious as to who Jeff is and what roads took him to this route and 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 doing it for a long time because like I'm still relatively new to this, you know, to calling myself a Marxist, uh, and you know, I don't even know what a Marxian is. So that's, for example, a question that I'll have for Jeff, um, and you know, so in a way, I'm sort of like eager to listen and learn and ask questions uh, to kind of guide me, you know, and, and, and see what, what it takes to sustain someone that long, you know, <laughs> to have those principles. And because a lot of people drop out and, you know, because it's a grind, it can be a grind. And so these are kind of the questions that I have for myself, you know, and especially, you know, as we enter this new epoch in, in sort of, you know, in, in a way, like, what will sustain a, a, a sort of movement of resistance and, 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 you know, that's why I'm curious to just hear you out, Jeff. And like, I'm, I'm also honored just to have you here and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I'll just say quickly, Jeff, that I, I appreciate everything. I mean, I agree with these, these guys here, but I mean, they, they come from their, their socialist lens. I, I'm, I'm very appreciative of all the comments and emails you send. And I, I try to keep up, but you are very well there involved and I appreciate you. I read it on the plane or I read it on the bus or I read it 
when I walk, <laughs> I'm not always able to respond, but I see the biomedical things. I see the worker for students, workers and students for choice. I see the, the things you send in that list of references. I just bookmark them thinking I'm going to come back to it. So thank you. <laughs> and I appreciate the criticism, the critiques where we may or may agree or not agree. It's always good to have that discussion openly and civilly with other people. <clears throat> thank you. Right, so maybe we can begin. Um, I normally begin first question, but I'm thinking maybe one of you two could to ask. The very maybe, maybe what I'd say is take it up from where Kenny was saying, like mm -hmm. where a little bit about where you came from politically, or well, however you want to do it, like a little origin story that gets us kind of hopefully <clears throat> roughly to this point today. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious as to maybe, you know, if you want to share where you're from and, you know, uh, like, are you from the Bay Area? How, how did, you know, maybe a little bit about your background, uh, you know, your early life. Okay, that's exactly what I had in mind. I had a segment, which in fact is called somewhat whimsically, pre-Marxism social formation. And uh, it's, a, it's a Marx reference. It's an oblique Marx reference. And... I included an article which I wrote about nine years ago describing my prospects for the future, but also in included a couple of paragraphs of a very short autobiography. And I wanted to just expand on it a little bit just to show where some of the influences that eventually got me to reading Marx and Marxian uh, thinkers and embracing much of what they've been, most of what they were about. So I was born in what was at the time the British Mandate of Palestine in 1947. It shortly became the State of Israel. My father was born there. At the time when he was born, he was still part of the Turkish Ottoman Empire before he got taken by the British Empire and became the Mandate of Palestine. His parents came as little kids from Eastern Europe, from, from what's today Ukraine and uh, Moldova and Romania. And my mother was born in Italy in, uh, before, right before World War I. There is actually a small Jewish community there, but they've been there since Roman times, many of them. In fact, they were there before many of the tribes who formed what's called the Italian nation. People such as the Lombards ever came to Italy. So you can't say, oh, they're not Italians, they're Jews. I mean, no, they were there way before many other people, other pe others would call Italian. So it, they had to leave in, in the 1920s because of political threats from the fascists. It wasn't about being Jewish. That didn't happen until much later. So at, I was born shortly after there was the uh, quote-unquote war of independence, in other words, the massive ethnic cleansing of uh, Palestine. And in 1949, as soon as it was possible to leave, my parents, particularly my father, filed for exit papers. They wanted, they wanted to get the hell out. They weren't allowed to until 1958. The state of Israel did everything it could to impede they're leaving just because they didn't want to hemorrhage. They're afraid of hemorrhaging numerous numbers of people. There are th 
three reasons why they wanted to leave, which I wanted to uh, talk about just very briefly. And a, a fourth thing that uh, influenced me, one of them, they realized the racism. They grew up with Arabs. They didn't like the new form, uh, virulent racism that seemed to be getting old. And they also felt like there'd be a war forever, given how things were. In fact, when I was nine, my father got called for as a reserve, as a reservist to a service to serve in the Suez War. 1956, very short-lived, but still war is war. We had to take air sh uh, shelter because of uh, an alleged air raid possibility. So we knew what it was. This was in the city of Tel Aviv, where I was born and lived until we left. There was also the fact that Israel was a really strange combination. It was a social, quote unquote socialist government and Israel's socialist party the Israeli Labour Party actually has a very idiosyncratic view of socialism. It has a great weird history about it. There's an excellent book I'd like to refer people to called The, the Other Israel by a group called Matspen Compass, which was written in 1970. It's The group was by a group of Trotskyists, but still, I mean, they... For the most part, they left their Trotskyist perspective out of it and just provided you with history. And it's quite a history. And that party was the, it didn't have a majority. It, so it had to obtain support from the religious parties. And so you had the weird thing of having a socialist party, which controlled, dominated the economic structure not only through the government, but also through the chief labor union, the equivalent of the AFL-CIO, CIA, as they call it, which also owned the largest company in Israel, Solel Bonet, meaning paver, paver builder. People used to sometimes used to call it ones or res, meaning rape, rapes, destroys, which basically that's what it did. It, just leveled much of uh, anything natural in Israel, built these identical looking apartment buildings. It extended its work to Asia and Africa in later years. It was basically a tool of uh, Israeli and then later American imperialism. And it was also the health insurance company of Israel was run by the labor union. So you can imagine how things are now trying to get representation if you're an anti-vaxxer from labor union in Israel. I mean, you're not gonna get a very friendly reception from that outfit. And the religious parties were given the Ministry of Education. They controlled who could get married in Israel because they, they de decreed whether a marriage was Jewish or not. They would not let conservative or if reform congregations actually be officially recognized as uh, Jewish. And through education ministry, they made sure that we got to, in school, that the first book we read was the Bible, the Old Testament, and we learned it as history, not as the Bible. I mean, this was taught to us as history. And of course, God's chosen people, that this land belonged to us, according to you know, the chosen people. And my father hated religious, hated the super religious. It meant he couldn't get many of his favorite foods 
back when uh, you know under the mandate. It also meant it on Saturday, the only day it was off, the country was shut down. You couldn't go anywhere. All the buses were uh, you know stopped working. The trains stopped working. The only way you could get around were taxis and uh, walking. So it was quite a mixed and of very conservative social attitudes. So it's quite a mixture of uh, things to escape. In addition, I started seeing what eco rape was about. The main, the largest river in Israel flows right through the city of Tel Aviv. And I saw it turning into a sewer, even as I was growing up. And it's now so toxic that in an international sports meet in 1997, several people fell into it because a footbridge gave way and they died from contact with the water. The water is that toxic. And the beach was a, a block away from us, but you go to the beach and the beach was like, you know, you don't want to swim there. It's like swimming in a sewer. So we managed to get out by finally in 1958, arrived in New York for a year or more. I actually didn't really speak English. So it was, you can, I, I totally sympathize with people who, don't speak English very well. I mean, when they arrive in the U.S., that's just, you know, what are you going to do? You have to take time to learn. And within a few years, I ended up going to an elite high school, Bronx High School of Science, and then went to the City University of New York, the CCNY, the School of Engineering, which is Considered really, really uh, good in terms of just in, in terms of what in professional engineering companies think. It's got a very high reputation. It now bears the name of Andrew Grove, who used to run Intel Corporation, the world's largest chip maker. So I, I achieved very, very well in terms of academically, but absolutely zero in terms of social understanding. I mean, social education, I just didn't have time to do anything. I was isolated in mostly male environments. I did have several events that were very influential in terms of how eventually I turned out. In 1961, I came home from eighth grade and the building we lived in had just been bought by a real estate company. It was rent controlled. The landlord was got too old to own it. They let it go to but it quickly became a slum and I came home and my brother was fighting off water that was gurgling up from the toilet. It was flooding the apartment. And I, a thought crossed my head. This is why people turned socialist, you know, because of landlords like, the, like this one. And immediately I said, oh my God, you know, God's going to strike me dead. You know, I, I said, you know, something good about socialism. I better not. And then I tried to find some sort of excuse. In 1963, in summer camp leadership training during high school, we went to a county fair up upstate New York, and I came across some conservative, really right-wing literature at a table, and it really hit a chord with me. The next year I became involved in the Barry Goldwater presidential campaign, and this was my first political involvement. I saw it as giving a finger to the establishment, which was, you know, the, the Republican Rockefellers 
and the de liberal Democrats at the time, well, Kennedy and Johnson. To me, I'm a rebel. I'm a conservative. I mean, you know, I'm a conservative. So that was a way of many people for rebelling. It's amazing how many Goldwater supporters actually ended up becoming, you know, a new left activists several years later. And in when I went to college, I joined the Young Conservative Club. This was in fall 1965, and I found it populated by regular conservatives, but these other people called objectivists, who were Ayn Rand zealots. These were like pre-libertarians. And I found them kind of wackened, and I talked to one of them, and I said, you know, you believe in no, you know, no government regulation. What about landlords? And, and he says, well, you can go sue a landlord if you don't like it. And what about companies that pollute the air? And he says, yeah, you can go sue them and say that they're polluting your air too. This guy was the son, the son of a rich lawyer in the suburbs. So, yeah, sure, you can. Uh, you think you can, it's very easy for ordinary people to go and sue me, sue whatever. And I realized maybe I shouldn't be hanging out with these people. You know, <laughs> I didn't know what else, you know, well, I, I stopped being with them after helping to organize a pro-war rally. This was at the time when the Vietnam War was being, was being escalated and we were trying to stem the tide against the war. And, the day after Thanksgiving in 1966, I realized standing waiting for a friend to do something, the air was just really dirty and it was almost 70 degrees and there it is November back east and this is unusual. A couple of months later, my brother brought home a book from the library about air pollution and I read it and I said, God, this is a disaster waiting to happen. We can't live, keep going on like this. We got to do something. But that sort of got put aside with everything else. I got busy at school and there was a war and my own social, well, lack of social life and everything. In 1969, after a year of service in Vietnam, my brother came back home and then started casually, after a while, started casually talking, uh, talking to me about what happened. He wasn't trying to shock me or anything. He was just describing daily life. And I was going, my God, are you doing, really? American soldiers are doing that? That sounds like, you know, atrocities. That sounds like we're just as bad as anything we may be fighting. This is horrible. And he just said, you know, this is war, Jeff. You know, get over it. And, well, so, well, I tried to get over it, but it was still kind of yucky. How old were you, Jeff? At that point, I was uh, 21. When I, when it was like, whoa, this is, you know, started talking about Vietnam. I still supported the war because I felt, you know, we had to fight communism, but it was like just ambivalent feelings. Then my father died. I had to decide Maybe I, it's not a good idea to go join the service. And, and in the meantime, I graduated and moved away. So that brings us to the Bay Area a phase of this. You graduated from? From City University of New York, CCNY, mechanical engineering. 
February, January 1970. Then I got a job in the Bay Area. I worked for Bechtel Corporation downtown. I don't know if you're familiar with them, the biggest construction company in the world. Basically, what I was working on was a division building nuclear power plants, the biggest builder of nuclear power plants in the world. And I'm not I, familiar with it, but I read your bio, your two paragraph bio uh, in the mm -hmm. article that you wrote that you shared with us from Nature Last. From Nature Bath Last, right. Yes. Um, it's presidents of Bechtel included George Schultz, who became Secretary of State, Caspar Weinberger became Secretary of Defense, and Richard Helms, who became the director of the CIA. So you're talking about serious ruling class here. And a month after I started, I realized something was really wrong. I'm, I'm in like an Orwellian type situation, a big organization. Everybody looks the same. Every floor looks the same in this downtown skyscraper. And yeah, what did I get into? This is what I get for all the time in college, trying to do better by myself. Next thing I knew, I got an induction, uh, a notice to appear at a pre-induction physical. The, there was still a draft going on, there was still a war going on, and I had to go take a physical to see if I was fit. And I went in and kind of a wishy-washy supporter of the war. I came out just violently anti-war. I just felt like this was horrible. This was cattle processing and it affected me. Ended up that my lottery number was low enough to get called for a physical, but just high enough to not actually get called for service. But if the, even after I found that out, I was still saying, we, this, is, this is wrong. This has got to end, this war business and all that. So I actually became more active about opposing the war after I was safe. It wasn't just a matter of saving my ass. But you weren't a part of the student anti-war movement then? No, I was never a part of the student anti-war movement while a student. Oh no, I was actually opposed to them. I was I would be the one who would take part in encounter in demonstrations against the students who were doing anti-war protests. Your brother's experience didn't persuade you otherwise, it seems like. It's pretty, well, I think it just took a while to seep in. As to, you know, it was just, I'm not enthusiastic anymore now that I see what's going on. Also, my pre-induction physical happened one week after Kent State. So it was a very part. Yeah, I think everybody's familiar with Kent State. Is anybody not familiar with Kent State? I'm not actually. Do you mind saying what that is? Well, no, May 4th, 1970, right after Nick, President Nixon ordered the invasion of Cambodia, there were massive anti-war protests all around the country. There was one at Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, which is near Akron, Cleveland. And National Guard uh, troops there fired and killed four students, injured several. One of them got permanently paralyzed. And this, this just elevated the level of protest nationally to a totally new level. I mean, it was the idea of Amer Americans being shot to support the war. And, Ten days later, uh, several black students were shot at Jackson State in Mississippi and killed. It wasn't as big a fuss. Well, for one thing, it already happened. Some people were saying it was racism. I think it was 
I think there was some of that that there wasn't as big a shock, but I think it was just people were already used to. I mean, it wasn't something new. It wasn't as drastic. So there, there was that turn on my part. And then there was, I started feeling again about the air quality was started. I was starting to raise questions about that. Then summer of late summer of 1970, I went to the beach and met this woman who seemed a little bit older. She turned out about 16 years older. I ended up, I ended up uh, smoking cannabis for the first time and uh, also, well, having uh, having free love for the first time and uh, hearing the Grateful Dead for the first time. I, was, I remember waking up the next morning and feeling, yes, I, I just, I feel like I've changed sides in this culture war. So uh, she kind of convinced me more into a more liberal perspective. It took a while that I lost my conservative leanings and became somewhat more of a liberal. Then came a big oil spill in the Bay Area. Two tankers, Chevron tankers, collided right outside the Bay and spilled oil all over the place, all over the beaches and Angel Island. And I volunteered to help clean up. And just, I think, working with with all the toxic sludge got into my breath. I started feeling like, you know, this shit's got to go. We can't live like this anymore. Not just the war. It's now the way we live. So that's when I actually started becoming political. My first political activity was with in Berkeley. I helped us elect to the city council several activists who were known back then as Berkeley Citizens Action. Actually, it was the April Coalition. <clears throat> they became the BCA. Little was I to know that 50 years later, they would turn out to be the people who turn uh, Berkeley into Manhattan with all these high-rise projects and impose this total lockdown and, uh, and COVID mania on the city worse than just about anybody. I mean, so... Th- I helped start them in their career. I mean, I feel guilty for that, but you know, who knew back then it was like we were changing Berkeley in a radical way. I also participated in a massive anti-war demonstration, drew 300,000 people to San Francisco. You can imagine numbers like that these days, people participating in any kind of protest. This was in April 71. And I started feeling more radical that this wasn't enough. I ended up being laid off from Bechtel. They didn't like the fact that I started looking like, you know, quote unquote sketchy while growing my hair long and uh, talking about how I was smoking a pot and uh, being anti-war. And also that I wanted to join a union. I mean, it was the last row. So I ended I ended up getting laid off, decided, went on an 11 weeks cross-country drive, just kind of just driving around, found a lot of counterculture communities all over. It's amazing to think of it, how, how much of a counterculture network existed back then, particularly in college towns, but even small towns like Twin Falls, Idaho. You drive in and next thing you know, there are a whole bunch of hippies hanging out at the Dairy Queen. 
and you know, exchanging stories, may, some of them from California or some of them who lived in California. And this is just all the way across the country to Maine, where I ended up. I came back feeling like I wanted to do something. Wasn't clear what. And I started doing voter registration and volunteered for the George McGovern the presidential campaign. I started encountering socialists for the first time. Well, quote unquote Marxists. The you first people I. Hmm? You said you moved to Maine. I, I, no, no, it was just the, on the, drive, the 11 weeks on the road. I see, I see. Ended up in Maine. Thank you. Yeah. And then I turned back and came to the Bay Area. Right. I, I was in many places. So I was back in Berkeley. I ended up back in Berkeley and started working as a voter registrar, also as a McGovern volunteer. And I also encountered SWP, the Socialist Workers Party, who had the Student Mobilization Committee. I actually started trying to have the student activist experience that I never, never had by participating in anti-war activities. And at that time, you couldn't, you, I started seeing that you couldn't draw very many people to anti-war events anymore. It was like things were changing, going the other way. And the SW people who really turned me off, they were really socially conservative and preachy. I did not like anything that they were about. So I, I continued being involved with the voter registration and McGovern and politics like that. Then I started encountering Maoists, like the Revolutionary Union, which later became the RCP. And there were just small Maoist groups. There was a group called the Red Family. They had two houses in Berkeley adjacent to each other. And it was funny, there are all the guys were foot had been football players in South Pasadena High School who somehow came together to Berkeley, all got radicalized, turned into Maoists and turned into deadheads at the same time. So I got to learn I got to hang out with uh, these people who were, you know, playing the Grateful Dead while talking Chairman Mao. It was it was kind of strange. One of them is today a state senator, the state senator from Monterey. He's a Democrat and he's, you know, you don't hear anything Maoist from him anymore. And he's got short hair. And I mean, he, he's just, and total uh, COVID, uh, total COVIDian too. That was his name? Just could. <laughs> Bill, Bill Monning, M O N I N G. Mm -hmm. You could probably look him up in the state legislature. And yeah. Oh, go ahead, Kenny. So just to kind of keep track of like the chronology for me, like how old are you at this time? What year is this, uh, more or less? With the Ma with the Maoists and yeah. everything. Twenty four. I'm twenty four. This is spring of nineteen seventy two. This is before you applied to law school. Right. It was actually, I was applying to law school at the time. Okay. I was in the process of applying and I took the LSAT that February. And now I was just waiting. I found out that I got into UC Berkeley Law School, but I was still, you know, not, not in there. And in 
April and May, there's a series of some very, very intense events in Berkeley around re-escalation of the war in Vietnam. And I just got totally alienated from many of the McGovern people because I felt like, well, they're being such holier-than-thou types complaining that the Viet Cong were now using tanks like they were supposed to just run up with uh, some machine guns against American tanks. And, uh, you know, back then there were heroic figures, but now they're using tanks. I can't support that. And also there is an organizing effort on campus to organize the campus workers. And I saw one time the police get out and just smash a picket line, just attack people with billy clubs and scatter it. And I said, I said to a guy I knew from the McGovern campaign, this is disgusting. And he said, they started it. They provoked the police. And, you know, it was like, this is out. You, you're outrageous. I can't stand people like you. So I started feeling like I needed to go past the campaign, which I actually quickly found out was just as corporate as the Nixon campaign, except it had a pacifist front. In fact, Reading the material from back then, it's like this was social impact investing being advanced for the first time was during the McGovern campaign. The ideas that eventually became social impact investing. So then I started law school. I also became a dad at about that time. And should we say started doing some mindful explorations and uh, things got Things got very uh, different. I mean, I knew I was past. I was past the Democrats. I was, past, but I didn't like anything else that I saw. Then it was summer. Of, in fact, this month in 1973, here I am nearing the age of 26, and the first time I had a full experience at a beach and. I went through a lot that one day, just feeling once again like it's great being out in the open, open environment, but at the same time, then you start coming back to the Bay Area and you see gradually how it's being destroyed as you go from the beaches in Marin County to the suburbs and then enter Richmond and a refinery. I was like, you know, it was as if somebody staged a trip for me to show the evolution, the devolution into where we were going. I also felt during it, I don't want to be answerable to Chairman Mao or any the arbitrary hierarchical leadership. I feel like I'm really an anarchist where I'm, you know, where I'm coming from. And I was turned on after a series of such experiences, I was turned on to a book by Murray Bookchin, who was a, he had a book called Post-Scarcity Anarchism, which I think much of it is crap, but interesting ideas about how there's no way to avoid ecocide under capitalism. The capitalist system just has to destroy the ecosystem. It's just, part of its operation, its need for growth, its perpetual need for growth, its need to change everything that's natural 
into synthetic and into commodities that you can sell. I started wanting to become an activist about it. I actually talked to the person I got the book from. He and his roommate and I and the roommate's uh, girlfriend became almost like a little anarchist cell and started doing things together. Then we got together with a group of people who were in what was then the New American Movement, which later became part of Democratic Socialists of America, but that was much later. At the time, the New American Movement had some interesting features. And we encountered people who came from what we called a situationist background. I learned about the situationists for the first time, who were, who did consider themselves Marxists. The situation, should I say something about the situationists? Okay, the situationists were a group of avant-garde artists who came together around 1960 in Paris. Not only French people, not only French, but people from other nations. There was um, Gianfranco Sanguinetti from Italy and Raoul Venegem, who's Belgian, and even a couple of Americans. And came up with this new idea. What they said was, a successor to Marx's analysis, they substituted for Marx and the commodity, the idea of the spectacle, how everybody relates to each other through images, which are mediated by mass media. And that that's the prime dynamic of society rather than the commodity and rather than wage labor. Although those continue because that's part of the spectacle and how the only way out of it is for people to just completely destroy the spectacle, refuse all representation, refuse all mediation and create organs of direct democracy. They became very influential. Their ideas became very influential during the events in France of May, 1968, which started as a student strike and became a national strike and movement of occupations of workplaces. That's not one of the uh, well-known features of history, but 10 million people were out on strike and occupying their workplaces. French society was actually at, at the, on the verge of a revolution. The uh, national broadcasting system was taken over by its workers. They would not show uh, pictures of the... Uh, videos of the president, they would show blank screens instead and having distorted, distorted voices for him. And they would broadcast message, anti-De Gaulle messages. Power workers started shutting off power to rich districts of Paris while keeping it on for everybody else. And the uh, tram drivers would pick up passengers without charging them, you know, and the, uh, this became something very serious. It didn't last very long, but it was one of the most serious contestations of social power. So in 1973, here I am talking to people who were actually discussing the works of the situationists. And I got the idea, well, if we could only let people know about it, immediately everything would fall. Immediately, you know, like, you know, within a matter of weeks, everybody would want to overthrow everything. 
And needless to say, it didn't happen like that. But we the group of us became, did a fun thing. We distributed a questionnaire in, uh, at Cal, disguised to look like an official questionnaire, and people didn't know it, and which basically asked people, how do we maintain the state of affairs where nobody's act politically active anymore? It was being very provocative, and it got across. So, and we intervened in the, the one of the last mass student actions in spring of 1974, in which we encountered people who called themselves Leninists, who demonstrated to me that they were more interested in keeping the movement under control than they were in terms of having it grow and become more radical. They didn't want it to become more radical. They wanted to keep it down and under their own control. They would rather lose and gain a few recruits than actually widen any kind of uh, understanding of what the world was about. And they focused entirely on guilt. You're supposed to be guilty because you're a well-off student at Cal and you're gonna go into being a well-paid worker sometime and you should be guilty about all the people all over the world, never questioning what the students were being trained to do, which is being trained to be wage workers and being repressed themselves. About that time, I actually finally came across some, you might say Marxist stuff that I appreciated. The first thing I came across was World Revolution, World Revolution and Internationalism. These were two publications by the International Communist Current. And I read them and they made themselves clear that they're adherents of Rosa Luxemburg. And they wrote about the world facing an economic crisis, which everybody could see was coming and how this was in the nature of capitalism. There's no way out of it except a world war. And I found that argument compelling. I found that, you know, well, this would mean that we have to get rid of capitalism or have face the world being destroyed. I did read some of uh, Rosa Luxemburg's works at the time because I was motivated to. I read Reform or Revolution and I slogged through the accumulation of capital and the Junius pamphlet was the work that most interested, interested me. I think it's probably her best work. She wrote it when in jail in 1915. And she actually forecast not only that the war, uh, present world war would end, but that there would be another world war in about 20 years in which the US and the UK would, fight, would end up fighting Germany in Europe and Japan in Asia. This was at the time when Japan was allied with the quote-unquote allies. So that's interesting. She could actually see the patterns of imperialism. I then became acquainted of the consul communists and people such as Paul Maddock and how their economic analysis differed from Rosa Luxemburg. Rosa Luxemburg saw the crisis as being the world could not present enough markets for capital to sell to. 
basically that the problem was not being able to sell everything that was made. Whereas Paul Matty came from a more traditional Marxist analysis of the problem is the structure of capital, the value structure of capital. I didn't quite understand it. I mean, it sounded compelling. I read Marx and Keynes by Maddox, and I read his critique of Herbert Marcuse. The Frankfurt School were very popular in Berkeley at the time, but he wrote this in 1972 and basically said, the present state of affairs where the working class seems bought off cannot be continued. It's a very temporary situation. And he was right. I mean, it was over within a matter of year or two after he wrote it. So I found that compelling, but it was still, I couldn't quite completely wrap my head around everything that he was saying. I read other people among the uh, council communists, such as Anton Panakok. I read his work, Lenin as Philosopher, in which he explained how Lenin, Lenin's philosophical understanding of Marx was inadequate. I would have critiques of Lenin as Philosopher today if I was reading it, but it seemed very compelling at the time. Jeff, also, it seemed, hmm? Jeff, it seems as if you were leaning into anarchism at some point you've mentioned the right. Um, in but, 73, yeah, I consider myself an anarchist. Right, and it seems from what i just referring to what you wrote, you said that you felt that this was um, more so the, the leaning, that you felt more aligned to this, but you are now talking about Marxism and, oh, excuse me, socialism. What made you, what, what I guess I'm trying to figure out what, what compelled you or pulled you more towards socialism? I found the argument about the structure of capitalism compelling. I felt like anarchists did not fully have an understanding of capitalism. They understood hierarchy and they understood ecological destruction, but many anarchists were actually advocating self-managed capitalism. They're advocating that workers take over their companies and run them as if they were enterprises, as if worker management would make the company okay, as if the problem was hierarchy, entirely a matter of hierarchy rather than structural social structure, the grand social structure of capitalism. And many anarchists did have a critique of capitalism, but quite a bit of it was just borrowed from Marx. Alexander Bakunin actually said straight out, uh, you know, in terms of understanding how capitalism worked, I think Marx did a great job. It's his political understanding that I disagree with. I'm quoting Bakunin here. So I felt it wasn't so much that I was abandoning anarchism. I was, it was also that I felt like I needed to start learning this other thing, perhaps combine them somehow. I think it was as a matter of emphasis, I emphasized that side more for a while, just because I had, it was new to me. I felt like I had to learn it. I never completely let go of the anarchist critique, 
In fact, yeah, I never let go of the anarchist critique. I felt like it was vital that you understand hierarchy and that you not accept any form of hierarchy in the society, any form of permanent hierarchy. Aside from the idea of, well, the infederated councils that you have, people are delegated to make decisions, but that those delegates be rotated and be vocable. In other words, no permanent hierarchies of decision-making. Um, I still, there are people who actually consider Marx an anarchist, including Maximilian Rubel, whom I referred to. He's got a work on at the Marxist.org, uh, at, at the Marxist. Uh, I think it's Marxist.org rather than Marxist.com website called Marx as an Anarchist, which I think is very interesting, even if I'm not totally convinced. Um, I'm just saying that it's not, I don't see those two as being intrinsically opposed to each other. So after reading these council communists, I came to a decision. I, I should start reading Marx himself instead of trying to filter him through other people. I read the German ideology. I read the 1844 manuscripts. I'd read a little bit of the Communist Manifesto back in college, but I considered it just propaganda, commie propaganda garbage back then and not worth reading. So now I went a different route into Marx. And I thought about reading Capital, but then this was at a time when the Grand Risa, the foundation of the critique of political economy, had just become available in English. It had only been translated in 1973. And a group of people I knew suggested we form a reading group and start reading it. And so I embarked on that project. And, you know, I, I got into it. It was one of the books that I re really enjoyed reading. It's not really a book. It's notebooks. It's notes that he uh, really meant to serve as a structure for everything, as an outline, which reading it, you can tell. I mean, it's not, it doesn't read like a book and you have to be very patient reading through it because it was like, you know, a sentence of one thought and then he digresses and then a sentence. And then I thought Marx could read it pretty well. I mean, if you're not Marx, you have to figure out somehow to get into his head. But it was very interesting. And you get, and you really do get the sense that there was a big structure to it, a much bigger structure than just capital. Capital was uh, just one part of what was supposed to be a five part. All the parts of capital, the four parts of capital, were just part one of a five part, were a grand work. And Maximilian Rubel, who I've mentioned, actually put, tried to put together everything into a new reading using selections from the Grand Risa to complete it, because he felt like Engels completely messed up in Capital Two and Capital Volume Three when he tried to put them together as books. Marx never did. Engels had to do it after Marx's death. Volume one was under Marx's control, and it's definitely the easiest beginning.
I, I just have a question in terms of the context, you know, uh, 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 you as a worker, what are you doing in this period where you're reading all these works, you know, or how are you making a living? Um, and okay. is that influencing, you know, your your understanding of these things? Um, I'm just curious about that. Halfway through my first year of law school, I borrowed money to go to a school, to, to go to law school. I also started a relationship with a new girlfriend. It was, I borrowed $1,500 and she managed to spend all the $1,500 by Christmas, of, you know, my first year. And here I was, you know, I need, needing money for the rest of the year. So I got a job tutoring Cal students in statistics. I help, actually helped her in statistics that a quarter. So I thought I could do it and I ended up doing it. I ended up quitting law school after two years because I felt like, you know, this, I don't know. I went to law school to become an environmental lawyer and I decided environmental law was part of the problem. It was pro merely providing an image that something was being done about an environmental crisis, which was systemic. You couldn't do anything just by filing lawsuits here or passing a, a, a new piece of legislation there, you know, to cure a systemic problem. So I ended up quitting law school, but I kept the job. So at, at this time I was still doing this job and I totally considered myself a wage worker. I mean, I was working for the university. I was basically teaching students the hard material, the stats, and later the math. I was doing all the work that the professors and the TAs weren't doing, teaching the students at a fraction of the wage. So I totally understood the idea of uh, you know, exploitation. At the same time, I also understood that I per se wasn't creating surplus value at the time. I wasn't producing commodities. Well, actually it gets complex because I was producing future wage workers who may produce surplus value. So I may have been participating in producing future surplus value for that. So, I'd like to read just a couple of things from uh, the couple of passages from the Grand Risa, which I think are really important. It's getting dark here. The conclusion we reach is not that production, distribution, exchange, and consumption are identical, but they all form the members of a totality, distinctions within a unity. Marx emphasized very much in the Grand Risa the idea of unity of holistic approaches to capitalism rather than these little excursions into let's look at this and let's look at that. It is simply wrong to place exchange at the center of communal society as the original constituent element. It originally appears rather in the connection of the different communities with one another, not on the relationships between the different members of a single community. Further, although money everywhere plays a role from very early on, it is not, nevertheless a predominant element in antiquity only within the confines of certain one-sidedly developed nations, trading nations, and even there, it only appears in their period of dissolution and in a very limited way. 
very few people realized it. Hardly anybody used money in their daily life until the advent of capitalism. People, most people were subsistence farmers. They didn't have to go out and buy anything. They grew what they needed. They gathered, if they didn't do it on their little plots, hereditary plots, they did it on the commons. They went out and gathered stuff in the commons. And this was true during Roman, ancient empires during Roman times, all through the Middle Ages. I mean, this is most, very few people actually needed money to survive. It was just people who lived in cities and traders who used money. Bourgeois society is the most developed and most complex historic organization of production. The categories which express its relations, the comprehension of its structure, thereby also allow insights into the structure and relations of production of all the vanished social formations, out of whose ruins and elements it built itself up, whose partly still unconquered remnants are carried along with it, whose mere nuances have developed explicit significance within it, etc. The intimations of high development among the subordinate animal species can be understood only after the higher development is already known. The bourgeois economy thus supplies the key to the ancient, etc. But not at all in the manner of these economists who smudge over all historical differences and see bourgeois relations in all forms of society. This is a favorite trick of particularly libertarians who try to tell you that you can see capitalist relations amongst hunters and gatherers, which is, you know, utter, utter idiocy. Those, those never didn't develop. There's no reason they would have developed. The so-called historical presentation of development is founded as a rule on the fact that the latest form regards the previous ones as step leading up to itself since it is only rarely and only under quite specific conditions able to criticize itself. Leaving aside, of course, the historical periods which appear to themselves as times of decadence. It always conceives them one-sidedly. The Grand Risa, by the way, is available online via Marxist.org. I think yeah, we, should, we should definitely have that link up. And one last thing. It would be therefore unfeasible and wrong to let the economic categories follow one another in the same sequence as that in which they're historically decisive. Their sequence is determined rather by their relation to one another in modern bourgeois society, which is precisely the opposite of that which seems to be their natural order or which corresponds to historical development. So in other words, money came first, trading came, way before capitalism, as did money, but under bourgeois society, under capitalist society, they became completely changed, incorporated into bourgeois relations. So you can't say, well, that's more primary because it happened first. And sorry, Jess, I, but this is where I disagreed with you in the presentation that you all did a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago regarding the idea of patriarchy preceding capitalism and there, because it came first in history, therefore it's more basic. 
And I don't agree with that formulation. Just because it came first doesn't mean it's more important now. Capitalism incorporated patriarchy. It incorporated everything that came before it, everything that it could, but in its own image, changed everything. And I think that that's an essential point to understand. Otherwise, you start thinking that, you know, you just have to figure somehow just because it came first, it's more, it's deeper inside our souls. And therefore, it's even if you root out capitalism, somehow patriarchy will leap out because it's more rooted because it's been around longer. I mean, sure, it has to be explicitly fought, but there's no reason that just because it came first, it's more basic in today's world. Did you get a chance to read Jess's cited horror reference? Yes, absolutely. I went to that, in fact, and that's why of I- Of course you did, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did, seriously did. That's why I, that's why I wrote back. I actually quoted from it in, uh, in, what, I, uh, in what I sent you. Maybe yeah. start, I'll start with this question. Um, <laughs> what is the reason you'd say Marxian versus Marxist? And what for you constitutes the core elements of Marxism that have carried a through line from when you were first introduced to these ideas to today. Because, so I guess that's what, those are some core questions or basic questions. What's the reason you might say Marxian versus Marxist? And what are the core ideas for you of Marxism that have held true and that you still say, these are valuable, this is a valuable understanding for understanding today, Fourth Industrial Revolution, the things that are taking place right now under capitalism. I would say Marxism, the ISM at the end of Marxism denotes to me an ideology. And I feel like way too many people have turned Marxist writings into an ideology, an ossified body of work that you quote out of, as if you're quoting from the Bible, and uh, well, literally, for some people, that is the Bible, as if you know, Marx said this, therefore, and rather than a method, rather than Marx had a particular method for investigating investigating phenomena, social phenomena. And Marx himself said he wasn't a Marxist. Some people said he was being whimsical, but I. He actually didn't say that he said it in French, je ne suis Marxiste, in a letter to a friend. But he was dead serious about it. He read something. He was sent by this friend um, a work that was, they called itself Marxist. And he read it and then replied to his friend, if this is Marxism, then I guess I'm not a Marxist. Yeah, he, he started feeling like his work was being uh, used without thinking. And that's why Marxian as being Marx influenced, as being starting following Marx's method. And that's what I consider the most important, the method, which is, in fact, some of the stuff that I was reading from the Grand Reason, how you have to approach things. 
Can you say more about that? So From the, seeing history develop, well, particularly the way people relate to their social productive resources as being an historical process rather than an atomized process, seeing, investigating how capitalism developed in stages out of earlier societies, what made that possible. Seeing in a way a materialist understanding that material conditions tend to exert the most influence in terms of what what kind of societies emerge. He was not a material determinist in the sense that many Marxists are, that material conditions are completely determined, that every, all ideas, everything else is ju just follows from the material conditions, making people nothing more than inert objects, which are acted upon by material forces, as if we have no volition of our own, as if we have, taking basically the subjective out of everything. And I feel like that's totally worth not, not what Marx intended for his work to be understood as. So I'd say it's the historical, historical element, understanding materialism in the sense of material conditions, heavily conditioned how societies develop and class relations are very important. Later on in his life, Marx was took great care to emphasize that he did not mean for his formulation of how capitalism developed to be applicable to every society that ever could exist. He never said that every society had to go through the same stages over and over in order to develop socialism, which was one of the defining reasons given for by the founders of the Soviet Union and Mao's China as to why they had to go through the same stages exactly and develop capitalism before they could have socialism. Yeah, in fact, he said specifically in Russia that he could see a short circuit to socialism because Russian society already had social institutions such as the mir, the collective ownership of land, and he could see them short-circuiting other stages of development. But that's been taken by Marxism, I see, as something which was taken and turned into a religion. And that's why, you know, I, I hesitate to uh, associate myself with it because of, I think the vast majority of people who call themselves Marxists today are nothing of the kind. I think that they really don't, don't understand, even understand capitalism the way Marx understood it, the way Marx's analysis explains capitalism. They, I, I gave an example, well, my underground twin brother, Jack Stroh, in the first article of the trilogy that I sent, 
talked started out by talking about the prominent Marxist author and how that author did not understand the process of circles value. I mean, clearly, the way he outlined how it works, he demonstrated that he didn't understand it. So that's my main take of Marx, a method for understanding how hum humans interact with their material conditions, and primarily how this interaction led to the development of capitalism and could foreshadow the development of something beyond capitalism. So, so some things that you talked about that are common benchmarks, the working class as a revolutionary class, capitalism has a crisis built within it out of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall in the accumulation of capital that will that also leads to these crises and that it has this sort of uh, birth cycle to it. And that, that that crisis is part of the possibility or is, con con is connected to the possibility of revolution. Like if it doesn't have crisis, then you can't have revolution. Um, are those features that you say, that you would say, oh yeah, th those are some elements of that description that are connected to the prop, I guess to that, uh, because that's the kind of things I think about um, when I think yeah. about what what is absolutely, absolutely, and it's not just it's a cycle that repeats over and over because it always it's more of a spiral. Right. It it repeats to some extent, but it also develops further as capitalist society builds worldwide. And this is exactly where I see it going today. I see is well the four IR. I see is really the latest stage of the enclosures which is how capitalist society became imposed on humanity. It's the latest development of uh, capital. Can you say more about that? The connection between modern enclosures and how you see them as the previous enclosures? We talked about some of the previous enclosures, like the idea that um, peasants were pushed off their land and pushed off the own, owning their own tools and pushed into places where they were only going to be able to work if they used the master's tools and worked in the way fashion that they had them work in cities and things like that became the basis for the creation of the working class, as I understand it. Yes, I definitely have something to say about that. Go ahead. One of the best authors in the Marx tradition, I feel like is Ellen Mikesons Wood, who was at one time editor of Monthly Review, and she passed, unfortunately, around in the early 2000s, or around maybe 2010. But she wrote some excellent books about the enclosures, I think making it front and center in terms of where capital came from. Her book, The Agrarian Origins of Capitalism, of which the title chapter and is available online. I highly recommend it. She discussed how in late medieval England, landlords began charging peasants money according to how much they, how well productively they used the land. Eventually they actually began expelling 
hereditary peasants from their plots in order to create large estates, which were turned into capitalist enterprises. Nothing, nothing, no other way to describe them. They are run on the basis of employing people as wage laborers. Most of the peasants were expelled. A few were kept around as workers, and they were employed as wage workers. And the, these were operated as enterprises, making a profit, trying to improve productivity constantly, and that way drawing investments from other sources in order to improve productivity. At the same time, the commons were closed off to the peasant class, meaning they could not obtain survival needs that way. And thus, many people were basically just left there to starve or try to live outside the law or leave, leave the country. Many of them were exiled to the among the first settlers of what's now the US were enclosed peasants who were sent here as indentured servants. They had nowhere else to go. They were convicted of crimes and sent here in order to serve sentences as indentured servants. Others were sent to penal colonies such as Australia. And because of that, a need arose for more better tools in order to improve productivity on these agrarian enterprises. And this is what led to the Industrial Revolution. It wasn't just a decision, let's start having industry. It was, let's develop means of creating better tools so we can improve the productivity, so we can be more competitive. And once you started developing industry, well, where did you get the workforce? Well, there were all these former peasants who are now living, you know, basically trying to survive, who would be glad to work at a, you know, for a wage because that meant survival. Of course, once they worked and realized that they're, they weren't going to live very long working as wage workers for 50, 60 hours under those, those conditions. I mean, they probably changed their minds, but by then it was too late. And then that started a cycle of further development of industry, further development of machinery to improve productivity in the industry. The Luddite rebellion, who was not, with, the Luddites were not strictly against technology, they were against technology which was de-skilling them, take, basically reducing them to just a, appendages of machines and uh, causing their wages to sink because they're now just servants of servants of these mechanisms. And that's why they smash the machines. <clears throat> so this is the real origin of capitalism. It did not arise in cities, which is actually a common misunderstanding even among many Marxists that somehow the trading cities were where it all began. It didn't. It began in rural England and spread to the rest of the world. Many trading cities in Europe, the proto-capitalists who were there never developed any capitalist society. They survived within feudalism, 
they didn't have any way to develop further. It was only when capitalism spread, capitalist social relations spread from England that they became predominant in the European continent. And then they tried catching up to England and Britain overall. And later on, it was in the US, well, the US was entirely enclosed land taken from indigenous inhabitants and populated by slaves taken from Africa and by enclosed peasants from Europe. Go ahead, Kenny. I would yeah. just to make to seal this off though is the what that is uh, during that process of increased productivity that out of agrarian production there is the creation of of the beginnings of uh, what's considered the more modern working class. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the enclosures enclosures never stopped. Well, for one thing, they spread to other countries besides England. Mm-hmm. Well, they spread to the rest of the British Isles. And I want Kenny to have his question, but I'm going to probably come back to the enclosure thing because I want to talk about it in terms of how you see enclosures today. But go ahead, Kenny. Okay. Well, I guess my question might connect that or bring it back. Um, well, I have two questions. Um, we, we've talked in the show about, uh, or you know, the, this notion of techno feudalism, right? Like new technologies allowing for more. Um, separations of individuals from their ability to subsist, right, or exist, and, and so being forced to participate in these systems. Um, and I mean, I, 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 I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. And I also, I guess, another part of it is like, you know, we talk about the working class, right, as a revolutionary class, and, you know, the class that can upset up in, you know, the, the, the system. And so what is the working class today, as you see it, you know, because I see a lot of people that have no interest, you know, in, you know, in changing their condition, right? Because they have proximity to the system and in their eyes are, they're okay. You know, like they have no interest, even though they might be considered working class. Okay. That's in fact, I was going there in a way, because I would say enclosures spread spatially spread into other countries, but they also continued technologically. It wasn't like things stopped, that the technological development stopped in the early 19th century. New technologies kept being brought in, all of which resulted in higher productivity, but at the same time, de-skilling workers. Later in the 19th century, I mean, it was towards the early 20th century that you got production lines, as with Ford, which, you know, com- complete the scaling. I don't know if you've seen the movie Modern Times in which uh, Charlie uh, Charlie Chaplin, in which he demonstrates, you know, the uh, assembly line worker and like after a while, you know, going off work and he's still going like that because that's what his, his task is at the assembly line. And massive the scaling of workers, which continued through the 20th century. And I feel like today what's going on is more of the same with high-tech form, people reducing to just pressing pressing keys. I mean, it's even gone beyond 
this uh, you know assembly line work and in terms of the working class as a revolutionary subject i think that you know i am i'm afraid to say i'm not very optimistic at this point i feel like a critical opportunity was wasted after world war 1 when much of the world was involved in an upsurge, not just Russia, but there are massive upsurges in Germany and France, in Britain and Italy, in Mexico and China. There are even upsurges in the US. Seattle for several days was run by a quote unquote, so well, a revolutionary committee during the Seattle general strike. It's a part of American history that's not well known. And there are radical strikes in the U.S. into the 1930s. I feel like the experience of having the Soviet Union be around was an absolute disaster for the concept of socialism. I think it could be repeatedly thrown at people as an example. See what happens when you stray away from capitalism, you only get something worse. And after World War II, many people in the American working class, well, especially if you were Black or Latino, you got to enjoy a relatively okay living standard. Capital could afford it in the US because of the super exploitation of the rest of the world. And to some extent in Europe and Japan, so people could afford very high levels of consumption, at least higher levels of consumption that they, than they had before World War II. And sure, they, they started feeling like they had a stake in maintaining the American dream or the French dream or whatever dream you had. Or, and that became untenable after, war, after 1970, more or less, when the global economic order started fraying and eventually just completely fell apart. It took, took it a while before it completely fell down. But I feel like nothing has really come out to challenge the ideological domination of the idea of make your own little dream come true ideology that's been really inculcated into people. People have no idea how, how, what, how could we live any differently? What do people do that, you know, I don't see anything else. I mean, quoting what somebody might say, I don't see anybody living any other way. It looks the same to me everywhere. So what choice do I have? All I can do is maybe hope that I can save enough money and create my own little business or escape to my little farm somewhere out there, wherever you can still afford to buy land. You know, all these escape hatches are closing up, not providing you with any room. So it's going to be difficult to convince people they you know, that any anything different could happen. And at the same time, 
going back to France in May 68. Nobody could see this coming. Public opinion polls in France in early 1968 showed a public that was pretty content with everything. Nobody seemed to have any deep-seated antagonisms to the status quo. And all of a sudden, a matter of weeks, it all seemed like it was coming apart. So things can happen out of nowhere. I mean, look at the changes that I went through in, in just a matter of a couple of years, going from a hyper-conservative uh, right-wing uh, engineer to a Berkeley uh, hippie anarchist activist. I mean, so things, things can change very fast depending upon circumstances. I feel like also with today, the health threat is a really big cudgel being waved at people. People are scared to step out of line because then you might get sick if you don't do what you're told. And if you don't, if you don't earn enough points, you know, on your credit, uh, on your credits, you may not be allowed to do what you're, you you want to do in the future, and et cetera, et cetera. There seem to be very few social alternatives to doing anything. This is a good. Uh, this is, I guess, the trillion dollar question: How do you get people to step out of step out of their role? Um, I'm afraid I don't have any answers. <laughs> well, let, Can you give I me a, Eduardo, you have a question. Go ahead. Yeah, I do, but I want you. Should, you should go with the enclosure question or whatever you want to take it i have a i have something to ask jeff yeah and i'm just going to call it now that we're going to do part two because i think i'd like to go into actually the world one one history the russian revolution spanish like some of the historical things and your take on that but i don't think we can get in at get into that today i think we'll just stay in this kind of area of working class what's going on that's my feeling at least um so i think we'll just do part two like next week um, does that make sense, Eduardo? Mm -hmm. um, so, so here's the I guess some of the questions I have in relationship to enclosures today, because the way I've read Marx talk about that other periods of a period of enclosure was it definitely was a was like a criminality on the part of the rulers of, of that time and what they were doing, like they were they were being like. Um, imperialists and all the things that, that he associated negative with modern capitalism. But he said, well, but the one thing that came of it, the, if you will, was the modern working class, which is, which are the, has the out of it, the possibility of revolution. And I, I listen to you and I hear two things out of that. One is still seems like you think that working class has the potential for revolution, but you're very like, I think you're like me here on this one. You're very pessimistic of it, realizing its potential. Like you were wondering how it could happen at the same time, noting, well, these things have happened before. Unexpected things have come out of history before. So what I hear in that is, because there are some people who are Marxists who would say, I know one in particular who I respect, who does no longer thinks the working class is a revolutionary agent of change. Um, and, you know, I, 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 so what I hear in you is still holding to that, but wondering how the fuck are they going to get themselves out of this? Because it seems like, They've let like things have gone too far and they become too, you know, um, head fixed almost. 
Um, but here's a question I have. So that's one thing I guess I'll say, and you can, you know, uh, make sure, see if I have any misunderstandings there. But the, the one question I have about incl modern enclosures is the process that I see happening to the working class is, so they were, they came from an atomized place, although they had the stuff, like they, they owned the tools, they owned the property, or at least they could work that property. And there was the commons, they were stripped of that and brought into the, into these combines to be collective. And then they just had each other. And then out of that, they, that, that each other power is what is the possibility of the revolution of, of that working class can make happen. Now I see them being atomized from the workplace. That's why for me, it was almost like a reverse enclosure process. Um, so I'm, I am kind of curious why you call it a new enclosure. Cause it's almost like enclosures in reverse, everyone go back home. But but you don't have the tools that you had when you first when you first came. You know you don't get you don't have the property. You don't have the land. You don't have the tools. You certainly don't have the skills that because those are generations gone now. And I actually would describe the process as almost reverse enclosure. And secondly, I almost think that if I think of gig workers, like I think of all of us as becoming almost gig workers, there's a way I think the working class is being declassed as a collective working class, and and an entire middle class is being made, not middle class like people think in terms of wages, but a class of, in, of individualized producers um, or, and, and who can only experience that from like, okay, I need to earn a wage, but only as an individual. I'm not doing it in conjunction with somebody else, whether that's on headsets across the globe, you know, or in whatever way they're going to reconstruct a working class, but managed over um, through the, through tech and through, um, you know, zoom and through all this other stuff and ultimately replaced increasingly by more tools itself as not just the mental la manual labor, mental labor gets replaced through data collection by AI. So that's why I maybe help me understand how your vision, I don't see a new enclosure in that I see a D I see a working class being turned into a middle class onto almost it's into back into peasants, but stripped of all the tools they had as peasants. Okay. Um, I definitely have a response to that. <laughs> enclosures, <laughs> enclosures is about limiting or even denying access to the means of producing your needs. And I feel like that access is being ever more limited than ever. So in that sense, I see it as further enclosures. In fact, I see the enclosures going so far as we're being, we're losing control over our own bodies. I mean, first they, they took away our access to the land, then they took away our access to any kind of food and, and air. Now we're we're even losing any ability to exert autonomous decisions over our bodies. Our own bodies are to be, to have stuff inserted in them, which will help the uh, rulers track us, take take our data, use all of it to educate the AI entity, as well as to allow the elites to 
make investments on us, betting on whether we achieve certain certain meters or not. So in that sense, I see it as full enclosures. I think the first wave of enclosures and first several waves created a collective working class the way that it had to come together to work for capital, in a sense, brought them all together and enabled them to recognize a common interest. But I think in that sense, this collective understanding of themselves as a collective worker has began to be eroded with the ending of what was called Fordism, basically with in the 1980s, when you started seeing a breakup of large concentrations of working class with dispersal into smaller factories, also dispersal of much of the productive work onto other countries, dispersal of the entire productive, oh, sh- should I say, the uh, ch- pr- chain of production internationally. So you no longer have any idea who the people at the other end who are sending you replacement parts for your machines or supplies where they are not working. They may, been work, they may be working for the same company. They may actually not be. They may be working for these subcontractors and working in some place you, that you never even heard of, that you cannot communicate to the people. Well, you could, but they'd have no ability to understand what you're saying. And these would be people who you might even be told are your enemies because they don't look like you. They don't speak your language. So there's a lot of, I should say, de, you might call it despatializing as in terms of space rather than, in other words, the working class has been, the way it's distributed spatially has been completely altered. And as, as you point out very accurately, we're more and more being relegated to working from home as individuals, not even having any contact with other workers and hence not having any kind of sense of who we're working with. We just know that we're part of this big hole. To some extent, my work experience mirrored that. I was working as a tutor and then an instructor. I frequently would not engage any of the other tutors. So we would have the idea of who, what everybody else was doing. We tried, I mean, this happened to some extent, but more than others. And what we were working on, the students often were the ones who were demanding that we were, you know, we work, we work up, I mean, made productivity demands of us, namely that we help them enough to do well in their course or at least pass. So it, was, it wasn't our supervisors who were making demands on us, it was the people we were serving, supposedly helping. So in that sense, you know, it becomes very diffuse, your identity as a worker for UC, but you're, you feel like, you know, where your exploitation is coming from is from the 
students rather than from the administration, which is really making you know the one that's forcing you into work conditions. But it's proceeding further. That is a, a big problem. That's a huge problem that we're going to be facing. I agree, and I, I don't quite know how to combat it aside from information. And then the question is, how do you get that information out? You need a uh, stubborn people to keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. Um, that's very helpful, um, Jeff. So maybe if Eduardo, Eduardo or Kenny. Eduardo had a question. I did. I did have a question. It, we talked about, Kenny had talked about how to have people energized or motivated to organize and or how do you get people to I, to see they are part of that working class and you talked about how they might not you haven't you're not really optimistic no about the social movement social movement at this time in the work amongst the working class yes is that it what is there a social movement no, I'm sorry. But I'm, I'm being I'm being facetious. I I don't really see much of a social movement in the American working class at this point. Right. So I guess where I wanted to, mm, not it's not challenge that, or but maybe bring some hope, was just the recent Occupy movement because it's it's the closest I feel to what we had in the USA and other parts of the world where people stood up and understood um, that coined phrase, 99%, to understand that they are a part of something. And I maybe people here can disagree, but I want to take your, your take on it, Jeff. What did, you, what did you make of that Occupy movement? Okay, the, <clears throat> the third article that my underground twin brother, Jack Straw, wrote, in fact, dealt directly with Occupy. It was about how Occupy should destroy the money system if it really wants to uh, make an effect. I participated in Occupy Oakland. I went, I participated in the march and then occupation of docks at the Port of Oakland, November 2nd. I think it was one of the I consider it one of the highlights of my activist life. In fact, it was so really neat to look back at one point, you know, being in the midst of a mass march and look back and see just masses of people lined all the way back to downtown Oakland. And here we were crossing the freeway into the port. And then more and more people arriving all the time and shutting down the piers and with the truckers quickly saying, you know, okay, we're not going to try to cross, you know. It felt like we made a huge impact. And at the, there was a smaller action several weeks later, taking again, shutting down the port. And there was a speaker in, down, in the downtown Oakland rally before the march who talked about how we have to make it clear that we have to deal with two enemies, capital and the state. 
And the two are inseparable and we have to deal with them both. And I thought, wow, these people are actually understanding what to do. And I started going to Occupy meetings, well, the education committee of Occupy Oakland. And that became such a downer because there were so many people who obviously did not understand what was going on. There are people who talked about how, well, we need we need a better money system or we need this. And then this one guy who just talked his way into a position of dominance who was an out-and-out operative of the Democratic Party. Mike Horner, I believe his name was, and he basically pushed his... Uh, oh, you know him? <laughs> no, but you mentioned these names and it's like you're calling oh. them out for <laughs> these people oh. that you know, remember. <laughs> I remember being in the Occupy movement and I said, and I don't even remember, <laughs> like your memory is so good. <laughs> Anyhow, keep going. So, <laughs> so anyway, corner. I felt like Occupy just got really badly denatured. And I went to the Occupy rally at Cal which I thought it was great that that many people turned out. And who do they have as a speaker? Robert Reich. I mean, come on. Occupy was about, you know, the fact that both the Democrats and Republicans were repressing the movement. It was, to remind was, folks, Robert Reich is worked under the Clinton administration, correct? Right, he was the Secretary of Labor. Hmm. And I think, yeah, he was a advisor to Obama as well. And the Obama administration played a big role in the repression. They actually coordinated all the mayors who to crack down on Occupy at the same time. This was through the office of the attorney general. So it really makes my blood boil to, to go on Facebook and see groups like Occupy Democrats that's like uh, that's like saying uh, segregationist Martin Luther King supporters, <laughs> you know. So Occupy started out as a great idea. I feel like some, you know, it just something went wrong in the process. I'm not sure if people just stopped going or the wrong people kept going. I don't know. We weren't around. I think that that's part of the problem. We, as the four people on the screen, plus uh, Jessica, we weren't around as an organized force. And we, we, I feel like it's almost like if we're around and we could have intervened in some, we and maybe some people we know could have intervened as some sort of a force and counter. counter I learned a lot during that time. And I'm not going to take up time to talk about that at this time, but I just feel like the assemblies were so long just to get an agenda to get together and to talk. I just remember it being very tediously just organizing that I could see how the forces that were trying to squash this were so rapid in their way of, you know, with organizing takes time. But anyhow, so you're saying, I guess what you're, you're saying is you found Occupy a disappointment. Is that what you're saying? Well, ultimately, oh, yes. I felt like it, it started out 
I was very, very enthusiastic about it. I felt like this was uh, something that hadn't been around in many years. Expression mm -hmm. of social uh, dissent on a mass level, which right. actually seemed like it had a revolutionary potential in terms, at least in terms of people understanding what's what. That's how I see it. I mean, but you're saying you've lost optimism. Well, it, I feel like what, what I saw, it lost, it lost punch very fast and it just didn't feel like it carried the momentum any very far. By, this was in fall, early winter, fall 2011, early winter of 2012. By the middle of 2012, I felt like there was very little energy left of it. And yeah, there was, there was uh, very disappointing in that sense. And that's probably where I want to go with another question that's in some ways connected, but I want to see if Kenny has. I, I have so many questions, <laughs> but I mean, I think that I would probably part two because I have questions about China, your views yeah, on the Union. Yeah. And, so I want to uh, stick with this because in some ways it gets to the mission of what's left. And I think it's connected to where Eduardo was taking us because I, I actually was at that, I think at that never November, uh, a moment, I, Brian was there. Like I remember, I remember that that part of Occupy, and I think I went to the Oakland stuff. Um, you did, Andy, and we met up at El Farolito afterwards. And yeah, you got tired. Do you remember? <laughs> yes, but I think you said something interesting, Jeff, that I'm still trying to grapple with myself because we go to these movements, we go into them, we actually hear from the front and with a roar of approval within the crowd, things like. This is about capital and this is about the state and both have to be fought equally. And that's said with seeming seeming honesty from the front and it seems to be received with complete approval from the people who are listening. And we get excited because we think, oh, this is the kind of conception and consciousness that is required if you're going to actually take on these the state and capital. Um, and yet we find that Cap, like, look at today. I mean, and this is the way that I agree with Jeff. We can know, we can know that the Occupy and the promise of Occupy is a failure because virtually all those people got swept up into a state which is going to lock you down under the name of a, of a spreading virus, a state which is going to mat, concentrate cap, do, simultaneously concentrate capital at the top and take it from many people at the bottom so that wealth redistribution is like off the scale upward. So all that's what they did right in our face, you know, 10 years later with nary a peep about opposition, not just from Occupy, but from revolutionaries, from Marxists, from anarchists. So it, it has led me to, to wonder how to make sense of these moments of Occupy. How do we make sense of people shouting, yes, capital state has to go down. And yet a year later, two years later, they're, they're like, fund the FBI and how do we make sense or how do you make sense of Marxists and anarchists doing a similar essentially betrayal, seeming betrayal of, of their ideas. And I understand there's a critique because Marxists might just believe in an ideology, but the ideology is anti-state ideology. The, the ideology is anti-capital that, that should at least give you a leg up for questioning that 
and it seemingly doesn't. It actually seems to almost do the opposite. So I'm wondering how do you make sense of this inversion of reality that we experience where a movement seems to be saying we're going to take the whole system on, and yet in a year or two later, it, the whole thing not just gets wiped out, but goes the other way, not just because the capitalists are running their tanks over us, not, it's not happening, but, but we are actually giving up our guns, handing them over to our enemy, hand, giving them the ammo, saying, hey, you just take it and shoot me if you want. You know, That's how I would describe almost ideologically how we, what has happened here. Um, so how do you, how do you understand that process? Okay. Um, first of all, it didn't take just a year or two. I mean, one could uh, talk about specifics. I mean, Occupy was really 2011, 2012, and the uh, operation pandemic happened in 2020. So it was more, it was different. It was over five years, well over five years for uh, the processes to uh, take root. Um, part of it started, I would say, way back in 2001 with 9-11, when Marxists and anarchists, for the most part, just went along with the official story of what happened the 9-11. Sure, some, many of them, most of them opposed what the, count, the countermeasures, what the American government was going to do about it. But they went along with the official story of what had happened. And I think I might have mentioned to you, Andy, but I, you know, I didn't mention it to Kenny and uh, Eduardo. One of my uh, longtime comrades somebody who I started participating with with back when I started reading the Grand Risa in terms of political projects, who considered himself a communist and, you know, participated in the situationist groups in Michigan. Um, we were working on a project which became the website that I, I direct you in articles. We started, it started out as a publication in 1976, in fact, like in print publication, and then became a website at the end of the century. We never really pursued the print publication. But anyway, after 9-11, he started talking about the uh, people in Southwest Asia, Afghanistan, and uh, the rest of that part of the world as goat heifers. I think you get the second part of that term. He started basically expressing just complete racism about such people, and he would not allow any kind of questioning of the official story of 9/11. He would start screaming that you know, you know, you know, incoherent stuff. He knew nothing of physics. I tried to explain to him some of my increased misgivings about the official story and physics, and he would not have it. I. Eventually, that group dissolved. It was impossible. So I feel like some of these people got old and started feeling like, you know, their particular status in the world was threatened. I mean, as much as they hated capitalism and capitalist society, they started feeling like they're under attack. And then in 2005, you had this uh, situation where 
a situationist group formed at Cal, some four Cal professors put out a book called, a group calling itself Retort, put out a book celebrating 9-11 as an attack on the spectacle from the outside. And they would not entertain any questions about as far as what happened with 9-11. Marxist situationists and, you know, completely closed-minded in every way. And I feel like a certain part of the opposition died with 9-11. When those those towers came down, a certain part of the opposition got crashed got crushed at this as well. I, f- I feel like even before that point, there was just a lot of sloppiness. May- this is some of the stuff I, that uh, Jack Straw goes into in his articles about how you know sloppy people who call themselves Marxists have become. People such as Rick Wolf, who actually was very influential with Occupy. And he would pose Marxism as the workers owning the means of production and running them as independent enterprises. And he said, that's what Marx wanted socialism to be, which is a complete lie. Marx, in fact, explicitly talked against that. So here you have people who call themselves Marxists who are completely lying about or severely misinformed about Marx. I feel like that's a movement that's gone completely wrong in its understanding of even basic material. In addition, what happened after Occupy and basically the repression and recuperation of Occupy, I feel like the Trump presidency was a brilliant stroke on the part of the power structure. I mean, I strongly feel like Trump was made president because the power structure saw Hillary as being unsellable to the public. So two weeks before the election, adopt plan B, uh, put out the word that Hillary's emails were being investigated again by the FBI. Do people remember that? How uh, Jim Comey, just a couple of weeks before the election, all of a sudden announced it. And Hillary's ratings sank five percentage points. And, and there was... Basically, I, I think the critical margin by which, you know, if she had those five percentage points back, she probably she would have been elected uh, president. I'm not saying that that's a great thing. I'm just saying they deliberately sunk her because they adopted plan B. Let's make Trump the president and use the four years as a selling point because every every person who considers themselves progressive from then on, start feeling, oh no, you know, the fascists are taking over. We better do anything to prevent the fascists from taking over and uh, even support the Democrats. And then when the quote unquote pandemic happened, I mean, Operation Pandemic was started under completely false pretenses, the, the power structure used Trump to put out messages saying, well, you know, Trump would say, I don't know about, you know, if, if this is true or not. And then immediately the media would go, see, Trump is against masks. Trump is against vaccines. And therefore, you should be for them because Trump is is against them. They did a great job selling, pressuring the 
what's what was left of most of the left into complete complicity with capital under the guise of opposing Trump. I think that was one of the biggest propaganda moves in history. And it succeeded. I think so. I would say the left and even the Marxian anarchist left was severely depleted and degenerated well at the beginning of the 21st century and Operation Pandemic in a sense just delivered the coup de grace to the critical abilities of most of its people. And here we are trying to pick up the pieces of what's left. <laughs> so I couldn't resist. <laughs> I think this is a good place to also stop. I, I appreciate uh, Jeff, you having come on here and share with us your journey, your political journey, your your transitions, <laughs> especially one who has come from a conservative background. Thanks, you, Jeff. Thank you. <clears throat> So that does it for this week's episode. Um, What's Left is a weekly political discussion, uh, a challenging amazing left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes working on this episode or on, on our blog at what-s-left.webnow.com. Uh, you can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please subscribe for eight future menu notifications to any of our platforms and Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram. And you can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. And uh, thank you very much, Jeff, for having joined us. It was such a great conversation. And I've learned a lot myself from this conversation. Thank you very much. Eduardo, Kenny, Andy, thank you very much. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-hosts Jessica, uh, Kenny Cepeda and Andy Lipson. Jessica's not here, I forgot. And you can find our social media handles uh, at Don Eduardo Barca and Kenny's at ZDKE and Jessica's Twitter handle at jhomie89. Thank you all very much. We'll see you all next time. Ciao. Bye.